And Lord, as we look now at words of Holy Scripture, would you speak into our hearts and minds? Would you touch us afresh? Would you lead us into all truth? For your Son's glory. Amen. Okay, well. Um, Gwyn, could I just ask you a favour? Could you just grab a few Bibles from out, out there in case somebody would like one? I forgot to put them out before the service. Thank you, music team, for leading us so well there. Thank you. There's... This amazing verse that we're thinking about tonight, when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's so well known that quite often we forget the context of it. It's part of the Last Supper. It's part of his last evening before the crucifixion. He's with his disciples. He's told them that he's going to be leaving them and they don't quite understand. And they want to know. They want to, they want to, he said that he's going to his father. They want to know the way to the father. And you know, we all want to know the way to God, don't we? We all want to know the way to a fulfilled life, to love and joy and peace. And in our reading, Thomas, one of his disciples, asks Jesus, how can we know the way? This is what Jesus has just said. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And that's when Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The answer Jesus gives to that question of Thomas's is perhaps one of the most well-known, but also one of the most controversial, contested verses in all of Scripture. And perhaps all of us struggle with it one way or another. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe you don't, but I think most of us do. Why? Well, if we go outside the church and say, well, if you're an atheist or from another religion, and you hear that verse, you say, how arrogant. How can Christians consider that they have the exclusive truth about the way to God? And if you're a Christian, you could feel 
The same way, in other words, you're kind of embarrassed about such an exclusive claim and you hope it's not really true, or you do believe it's true, but perhaps it troubles you when you think of close family and friends who, well, you're not sure if they're Christians, or perhaps you know they're not, what will become of them? How will they find their way to God? Can they find their way to God? Could a loving God really consign them to damnation? So what are we to do? How are we to live with this famous verse, which is used at so many funerals and evangelistic messages? What does it say about devout, loving Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, all of whom are in the same boat in that they don't know and love and worship Jesus, the Son of God. And what about those who've never even heard of Jesus, perhaps from remote cultures? How can Christianity be so arrogant and exclusive? Well, firstly, let's think about other religions. Did you know that approximately 85% of the world adhere to one religion or another. 85%. And did you know that Christianity is by far the largest of those? An independent 2011 worldwide survey puts the number of Christians out of a 7.7 billion population at 2.2 billion or 31%. Just under a third of the world's population are Christian. Then there are about 1.6 billion Muslims, or 22%. There's about a billion Hindus. And then it drops down to, you might be surprised at the next one, 394 million Confucius followers, or traditional Chinese followers, 376 million Buddhists, and then it drops down to 100 million people who follow African traditional religions, 23 million Sikhs. And I don't know if this will surprise you or not. It kind of surprised me a bit. According to this survey, there's only 14 million religious Jews in the world. Tiny, tiny number. I mean, a tiny fraction of a percent. 14 million Jews. And after that, dozens and dozens of other religions About 15% of the world's population, about 1 billion people, are secular, non-religious, atheist or agnostic. In other words, no religious adherence. But 85% of the world believes there's a God or there are some gods. So the question is, is Jesus the only way to God? And although there are a number of different ways of approaching the question... The unequivocal answer of the New Testament is yes, he is. The verse, no one comes to the Father except through me, doesn't leave much room for doubt. Jesus declared himself to be equal to God. Just a few verses later, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says that one day he will judge the world that our eternal destinies will depend on how we respond to him in this life. 
In Acts chapter 4, after healing the lame beggar at the temple gate, Peter the Apostle boldly and publicly states, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And in his second letter to Timothy, Paul the Apostle writes in chapter 2 verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between man and God, And that's Jesus Christ. On this point, there is no wiggle room for Christians, if you like. The Christian answer to this question is that Jesus' statement that no one comes to the Father except through me is consistent with all New Testament writing and understanding. So is Christianity exclusively right and the other religions entirely wrong? And on that point, my answer is, well, no, I don't think so. In fact, as Nicky Gumbel writes in his book, Searching Issues, we would expect to find some truth in other religions. Why? Well, firstly, God is revealed in creation. The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. God can be found in creation. Paul writes to the Roman church, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Other religions, too, see the hand of the creator in the magnificence and the beauty of what God has created, and they rightly worship him for that. Secondly, we're all made in the image of God, and that inherent God-like DNA in every person means that many religions have some very similar teachings. So, for example, do unto others as you would have done unto you has been around since Confucius in 500 BC. Thirdly, the Bible tells us that God has put eternity in people's hearts. And so there's a God-shaped gap in every human being which drives our search for God. That's why there aren't many atheists in the world. We're hardwired to reach out to our creator. Fourthly, those on the mission field in other cultures around the world, especially, often report a sense of continuity experienced by those who convert from other religions to Christianity. Bishop Leslie Newbigin, who was in South India for 40 years, reported that there was often a strong conviction after conversion to Christianity that it had been the living and true God who was dealing with them in their pre-Christian wrestlings. However, some people consider all these points and conclude that all religions in the world are basically the same. But that is simply not true. Some have similarities. Christians, Jews and Muslims believe in a personal God who's revealed himself to humankind. Buddhists and Hindus believe God is impersonal and unknowable. And God clearly cannot be both of those things. But Christianity is also different from all other religions in a very, very important point. And that is that the, the idea that God has reached out to us 
to save us because we are helpless to save ourselves. Every other religion in the world is based on man's efforts to reach God. These world religions teach that we must somehow do enough righteous deeds or perform enough religious ceremonies or sacrifices, whatever it is, in order to, be, to become good enough for salvation. And if not, we're doomed and damned. But in Jesus, God says simply this. He says, I love you. And I love you so much that I've come in the person of my son and died for you in order to save you from the result of judgment. All you have to do is accept what my son has done for you. And that's grace. That's love. That's forgiveness. That's Jesus. That's Christianity. But what about those who've never heard of Jesus? If the only way to God is through Jesus, are all the rest of the world simply heading for hell? Simply damned for eternity? Surely that's not fair. That can't be a loving God. How does the Bible answer this question? Well, of course, the Bible doesn't answer that question directly because it's a hypothetical question. After all, you can only ask that question if you have heard about Jesus. But here are some thoughts that I found quite helpful. And the reason, one of the reasons this subject is quite dear to my heart is that as I was on a journey to faith 16 years ago, and I was doing Alpha courses and looking into that and reading this and reading the Bible and all the rest of it, this issue was a real stumbling block for me. And I, I had to wrestle with it a lot. But here are some thoughts that I found helpful. Firstly, we believe in a God who is, above all, ultimately loving and ultimately just. He's the judge and we are not. In fact, he commands us not to judge others. You know, sometimes when you hear of the death of, death of a person and, and you hear Christians asking, oh, were they a Christian? And you kind of know that the question behind the question is, oh, are they in heaven? Or even worse, are they now in hell? And those questions can cause real and understandable fear and anxiety. But if we believe in a God who is loving and just, then we have nothing to fear. He's the God of love. Secondly, it is possible to be saved by grace through faith, even if someone has never heard of Jesus. Paul reminds his Roman listeners in chapter 4, verse 3, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And in the same way, a person living at the same time as Jesus, or even after Jesus, could be justified by faith, even if they had not heard about him. The tax collector at the temple who said, God have mercy on me, a sinner, even though we have no reason to believe he was a follower of Jesus, went home justified. 
Surely the same would be true of someone today who had never heard of Jesus but did what the tax collector did. As the missionary Norman Anderson wrote, the essential elements would seem to be a God-given sense of sin or need and a self-abandonment to God's mercy. If a man of whom this is true subsequently hears and understands the gospel, then I myself believe that he would be among the company of those whom one does sometimes meet on the mission field, who welcome and accept it at once. Or, if he never hears the gospel on earth, will wake up on the other side of the grave to worship the one in whom, without understanding it at the time, he had found the mercy of God. And I suppose, I suppose the two points I'm trying to make are this. Firstly, it's not our job to either decide or worry about who goes to heaven or who doesn't. It's God's. And we can trust that he is totally just and totally loving. But secondly, and really importantly, there is something we can do about it. And I think God wants us to do something about it. I think the Christian life is all about doing something about it. So let's just spend a little time considering that. You see, the good news is that God wants as many people as possible to spend eternity with him. And there are some great encouragements in Scripture. Abraham was told that his descendants, and this surely refers to his spiritual descendants, the future people of God, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. Secondly, God is on our side. He's rooting for us. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So he's working for people's salvation. Thirdly, Jesus has told us in the Great Commission of Matthew's Gospel to go and make disciples of all nations. Now he wouldn't have said that if he didn't want us to persuade people of other religions that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. But he said, go and make disciples of all nations. So we're to be involved in taking this good news out to the world around us. And fourthly, and very importantly, without knowing about the love of God in Jesus, no one can have that amazing assurance that we have as followers of Christ that we're forgiven, that we're set for eternity and we can live abundant life because of that. And the reason is because other religions don't promise that. It's that simple. They require you to attain to some kind of standard but you never know you've reached it. By contrast, we have the best news in the world to share with those whom we come into contact with that Jesus died for all that he rose from the dead, and that when we turn to him, we're forgiven and set free to live life to the full for eternity. And one of the best ways to share our faith is to concentrate on the first half of that verse, verse 6, rather than the second, which often gets a lot more publicity than the first. And in the first half, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so many people are searching to find a way of life that will ultimately satisfy. 
I was searching for many, many years myself. Early on, it was drink and drugs and one-night stands. And later on, it was promotion and money. And then it was, when that didn't satisfy, it was dangerous sports and exotic holidays. But I still didn't find what I was looking for. And Jesus says, I am the way. And when I found Jesus, I knew that I'd found what I was looking for. So our role as Christians is to point people to the way of Jesus by living his way. And what had Jesus done just before he made this statement? He'd washed the disciples' feet. He'd taken off his clothes, put a towel around his waist, he'd got down on the floor and he'd washed the filthy muck off the feet of his disciples. And then he told them that far more than that, he was about to give his life as a sacrifice for them in order that they could find their way to the Father. He'd showed them the way. So he says, I am the way. And then he said, I'm the truth. And you know, so many people are hungering after the truth. Uh, Sinead O'Connor, the Irish singer-songwriter, said this. She said, as a race, we feel empty because our spirituality has been wiped out and we don't know how to express ourselves. And as a result, we're encouraged to fill that gap with alcohol, drugs, sex or money. People out there, she said, are screaming for the truth. Now, I don't know what Sinead O'Connor believes, but I believe she was right on that point. And the greatest truth there is, is that there's a God who loves us, who's revealed himself in Jesus, and who longs for us to live in relationship with him. And that when we do, he brings us new life. And Jesus said, I'm the life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And he also said, I've come so that they may have life and life to the full. And you know, what energises my faith almost more than anything else is seeing the real tangible transformation which the love of Jesus brings to people's lives. That was certainly the case for Kirsty and I as at the age of around about 40 years old we both discovered the life-changing effect of coming to know the Lord Jesus of God's love being poured into our hearts, of the new life that the Holy Spirit brings. And you know, one of the reasons I love running the Alpha course time and time and time and time again is seeing the same thing happen in the lives of others. A little miracle takes place as we see people being brought out of darkness and into the light, into God's amazing light. And you know, on this last Alpha course, we've seen people's lives changed. It's been amazing. We've seen people who said this time last year they were in utter despair and now their eyes are bright. One of them even said, you know, all all the colours look brighter than they used to. And, and, And actually I remember thinking that myself just after I came to faith as well. Interesting, isn't it? All, everything is bright, everything's... And it's so lovely to see that transformation. I've had the privilege of seeing and listening to 
someone who's come to faith on the Alpha Course calling out to God for the first time and seeing their prayers answered. Just wonderful. Fears being lifted off them. Jesus says, I'm the life. It's through me that you experience life to the full. So, going back to that question that Thomas asked Jesus, how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's the truth. And we shouldn't be ashamed or embarrassed about it. God is totally loving. He's totally just. He's the judge, not us. Our destinies are completely assured by his promises. When we know that when we get to heaven, we won't be distraught about who's there and who's not because he has promised us that in that beautiful new heaven and the earth, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness. Only joy and love and peace in the presence of our loving Heavenly Father, the Son who died for us and the Holy Spirit who lives in us and all whom Jesus has saved for eternity. This is the good news. This is the message that we must take to the world.